Good morning. God is good. Oh, there's a few that said all the time. Todo el tiempo, right? I don't know much Spanish, but I know Dios es bueno. Todo el tiempo. And I even sound like them, don't I? Dios es bueno. I've been practicing on that. Uh, the Dupuis Moodyweds helped lead us today. Isn't that great? Amen. Still newlyweds. Still getting. That's right. Still in discovery mode. And the news is, you will always be in discovery mode. <clears throat> uh, Raymond just leaned over and said, the count this morning was 196. So here we are. Bumping that 200 mark. Well, it's good to see you. God is incredibly good. Um, thankful for the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And uh, I, I just want to say something about our TFA app. It was uh, developed as part of a package that we got when we uh, uh, did, we expanded some things in our uh, uh, presentation of our church. And so it is a great app. You can go to uh, the podcast on that app. You can give. And um, I'm telling you, I, I'm glad I'm not writing nearly as many checks in 15 seconds I can give. That, that's great. And so if you haven't downloaded our app, download it. It's an easy way to give. It's also a way for you to catch up on the podcast. And uh, four weeks away, back in July, I, I just was soaking up those podcasts from uh, different ones who preached. And I appreciate that. Um, today's title is taken from one of the uh, verses in Amazing Grace through many dangers, toils, and snares. So there's the title for this morning's message. Uh, we've been in the book of Acts for a couple of months, and uh, we're close to finishing up the series. A very fascinating, fascinating narrative Luke gives us through his writing to Theophilus and uh, gives us an in-depth look at that first generation of the church, at first generation believers. The Word of God, we was talking in Sunday school about this book, the Word of God, and I shared some things Wednesday night from Hebrews 4.12, and uh, I, I told everybody there's some statistics I'm going to be giving on the effect of weekly reading of the Bible, four times a week. People who have been surveyed who read their Bible four times a week there's percentages of things, positive things that happen in their lives, and I want to share that Wednesday night. Hey, we need daily encouragement, not four days a week. We need daily encouragement because we have daily challenges, and, um, you know, we have devotional books. We, we have a book that we have for people. It's a daily devotional book. It's a neat little book. We have um, Bible apps. How about that? Uh, you said something about you have seven or eight Bibles. At your home, I have probably more than that. But I have about 70 or 80 right here. All kinds of translations. So the, we have all the tools we need to know this book. The problem is, are we using those tools? And are we carving out in our busy lives? In life, you realize how many inventions uh, came about to get us to save time? I remember... I, 
I remember where your ice in your refrigerator was in trays. And you had to, you know, put them underwater a little bit and pop them open. And, and now we got that is made for us. But we don't have any more time than we used to have. It seems like we had all kinds of time. But everything was geared microwaves. How about that? Boy, we could have wore out a microwave when we was first married, couldn't we? Because we hit TV dinners, man. We wore them out. You know, it was like microwave. It was too late to come along for us. But here we are in the busyness of life, and we're having struggles. Am I speaking just for myself? We're having struggles carving out time in our schedule for this, for just sitting down in a calm moment and just reading some of it. It is a challenge. This is one of the reasons why I follow Justin Kemp. There's a, going to be a slide up here um, that I, I want to acquaint you. If you're a man and, and you're busy, if you're a man and you're not busy, well, I don't know what to say to that. Uh, <laughs> something's wrong with that. But uh, if you're busy, this guy uh, lives in California with his wife, Jennifer, Justin and Jennifer Kemp, and he spent 17 years in the Silicon Valley with, with high-tech startups. Before that, he was a lawyer in New York. And I know some of you are wondering, and, and he's a Christian? Yes, he's a Christian. He is such a strong evangelical. He sends out a devotional called WIRE, W-I-R-E, and, and the uh, website is there. If, if you have access to apps in your man, you need to, you need to download that. And our, our sign up, it comes in the email on Mondays and Thursdays, and it's geared for busy people. It takes less than two minutes to read it. I timed it the other day. And that's with me reading some of it again. But he just, it's just like, bang, there's this truth that he gives to men, and it's always relevant. There's a few of us guys in this uh, room that have that. And then I have my Thursday morning men's hardies group and it doesn't matter whether there's hardly anybody there or the place could be packed we have a good time of prayer after we've had our coffee and biscuit as uh larry Brackman would say we go in and got a biscuit but uh those mondays and thursdays and last monday a week this this past week his uh his devotion was titled uh danger is our business living dangerously and I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 27 and 28 for this message, Dangers, Toils, and Snares, because Luke is finishing the end of the book of Acts. In fact, 28 is the last chapter, and he tells us about some of the dangers, toils, and snares that he and Paul and the team encountered. And, and not only did Paul get shipwrecked in chapter 27, Aristarchus, one of his team members, was with him, and Luke was with him. It's kind of hard to picture. We can picture Paul trying to swim to the shore, but with him and all these other people that was on this ship are trying to get to the shore. And so this storm encompassed everybody. It included Paul's friends with him on this journey. And when the Chapter 28 concludes, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. I want to take you, though, to this passage of Scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I think you'll have the slide up there. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he's kind of listing 
the things that, that he had went through. Here's the list. Is it up there? Yes. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 39, five times he was beaten with 39 stripes. Three times I was beaten with rods. That probably didn't feel good either. Once I was stoned, and we've read about that. They thought they had killed him. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times, not one. And there's a, a, a caveat to this. I'll come back to this. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in sea, danger from false brothers. He lived a dangerous life. In toil and hardship, it's kind of like those words from Amazing Grace fit this, doesn't it? Dangers, toils, and snares through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Some translation says nakedness. He knew what it was. And, and if you're there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is what he thinks about that list. Is like, um, please somebody give me some comfort. No, he's like, and I boast in that. I boast in all that it pointed so much out my weakness so that my weakness could be swallowed up in the strength of the Lord. That's how he looked at this. So we're going to first of all look at dangerous decisions. If you have a bulletin, this is kind of outlined on the back of that bulletin. And the scripture up here is Acts 27, 11. This is the dangerous decision that was made that, that had a major role in everything that happened. Verse 11, it's the major decision. And it is that the ship's owner, the pilot, and... Uh, the centurion, they listened more, the, the centurion listened more to what the ship's owner and the pilot had to say than what Paul had to say. And as you look at the start of this chapter, as it says, we're going to head off to Italy, they're hugging the coastline. If you're following chapter 27, just stay there with me if you have it in your Bible or on your app, because I'm going to point out several things in these next verses. He talks about Aristarchus. He also names the centurion. Isn't that neat? Luke is so specific. Julius is, Julius is in charge of the prisoners, in charge of Paul and others. So he names Aristarchus, and we know from the first personal pronoun usage of we that Luke is on board that ship as well. He's writing this. So they're hugging the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just going up past what is Israel into Lebanon, and they stop over in Lebanon, and then they keep on going. And in verse 4, it says, the winds were against us. That's not good for when you're sailing. The winds were against us. In verse 6, they changed to an Alexandrian ship because by definition, those ships were more conducive for stormy activity on the Mediterranean. In verse 7, it says, we made slow headway for many days, and they headed over to the island called Crete. We're going to look at that island in just a moment. In verse 8, it says, we moved along with difficulty and came to fair havens. That is a port on the southern side of Crete. And in verse 9, much time was lost. And for men, you just don't travel losing time. We hate to lose time because we we're trying to set the record for the last time we traveled somewhere. So Paul didn't feel good. Right after that, Paul is saying to them, 
you know, he's warning them, and the centurion doesn't look, listen to Paul, but he warns them, says, I don't feel good about this. I don't feel good about this decision. What was the decision? The decision was to sail from Fair Havens over to Phoenix. Now, here's a map of this decision. This whole decision was based right here. This is, a, this is Paul's, they, they're sailing along here, and the wind is against them. They're losing time. This is not going well. And Paul has a sense that something is not going to be very good here. And I want you to look at Fair Havens to Phoenix. They're in Fair Havens, and the decision is, do we try to get over to Phoenix? Now, it tells you in these verses why everybody that was in charge of the ship wanted to do that. Over in Fair Havens, the port, the bay that they were in was open to the southwest. And most of the time, the winter blasts of air came from that direction. And so that wasn't a good port. If you go over to Phoenix, the port is kind of like concave. It comes around and makes a circle, and it opens up toward the northwest and the southwest. It's kind of sitting in an unusual way, but it blocks them from the winter blast. So that is about 40 miles about 40 miles in a few days, they made a decision. That's all the distance they had to get to that everything else goes haywire. So there's this decision, and here's the consequences. Because when you make dangerous decisions, there's dangerous consequences, right? And the consequences were horrific. You can see, if we go back to the previous slide, you can see they made it a little way over toward Phoenix, but it doesn't show here um, there is a, a Mount Ida that's 8, 000, over 8,000 feet in elevation. Now, that's higher than Denver. So this is not a, a low-terrain island. So it, it was designed in such a way when the northeasterly came off of that mountain, it picked up speed. And you can go back to the next slide. There was consequences. It says in verse 14 that the south, the southern uh, calm breeze gave them the notion they can make it to Fair Havens to Phoenix. Wasn't going to happen. So this hurricane force wind took over the ship, swept down off these mountains. Three people, thinking about this, the centurion, the pilot, the owner of the ship, three people made a decision that 273 other people were endangered by. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever been caught up in somebody else's decision? That you didn't have anything to do with it, but yet you're caught up in it. Yeah. Somebody said, oh, yeah. My buddy Andrew can tell you. I can tell you. Because when I was putting all this together, I remember I've had two accidents in the 24 years I've been in this city. One of them was right in front of Lowe's, sitting still at a stop sign or at a red light, waiting to turn left to go north to 359, and the guy just turns left right into, our, right into her door while we're sitting there next to each other. And I saw him when he started turning, and I was like, no. Does anybody else talk to other cars? And, no, no. And bang, he hit us. And, of course, I'm trying to get my seatbelt, and Brenda's over there and says, Charles? You need to calm down right now. She's been my 
my calmer. I said, that was so stupid. He didn't see us sitting here. Well, there's a reason he was three times past the limit of alcohol level in his blood. He was 0.3. I was called as a witness <laughs> to the court, you know, because when the police got there, he says, has he been over to this gas station drinking? I says, no, he's been standing right there. I don't even know how he was standing. And so I get this call to summons to be a witness, and he was, he was a retired school teacher. No slant on school teachers, okay? Maybe, maybe all that school teaching drove him to drinking. I don't know. But, <laughs> but I remember distinctly the judge said, he came up, poor guy. I felt bad for him. And um, the judge says, do not tell me you had a couple of beers. It will not. It will not go well with you. So he, he owned up, and, I, and it was a very expensive fine. Well, the, that was one accident. The other accident was about 17 years ago. I was in a different white Ford Ranger heading 2 o'clock after church on Sunday morning when we lived over in Huntington Place in Northport. And I was heading down into downtown on Lurley Wallace, where all the lights are synchronized. It's so wonderful. Isn't that wonderful? And we're just cruising through there, 2 o'clock, and right before you get to the first light is a stop sign where the OYMCA used to be. And all I saw was a blur of a car fly out in front of me. Oh, I hit my brakes, but it was like he was right there. Bang! I hit him going about 45 miles an hour. I turned my, I, I whipped the wheel, standing on the brakes. He just like had no time to hardly do anything. And my airbag deployed. Dust is all in the cab. People are running to check on me. My, the front end of my truck is gone. And I, I'm thinking, I just killed someone because I, I hit in the passenger door of that car. It was just bang. And I looked up, and he had been, I knocked him down further on Lurleen. And the side of that car was destroyed. And I thought, oh, God, I hope I didn't kill someone. That guy was drunk. Two o'clock on a Sunday morning and wild turkey in the back seat of his car. Wild turkey and him didn't fare very good that day. Here I am, and, and, and this is the only bad part about it. I wasn't hurt. But about two days later, I had to have a root canal because it damaged one of my mowers. So I would have just rather had maybe a laceration or something. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Not really. But it, it's like, and, and the insurance took care of all this. But think about situations where someone else makes a decision and you're caught up in it. It's not your decision. 273 people were at risk because three people tried to make 40 miles of sailing to save a few days, and just a few days, they were going to winter there. It wasn't like they were going to continue to go to Italy. They were finding a place just to hunker down for the winter. And that little decision, it's kind of like what 9-11 happened. All those people that got up that morning and went to work, took the elevator up to the upper floors of, of the World Trade Center, children, elementary children in Washington, D.C. that had a reward of a trip out to L.A. They get on a plane. All these families, firefighters, police officers leave that day for that shift. They kiss their spouses and, and hug their kids. 
and they're caught up in someone else's decision. Sometimes the storms you're in are not storms you created, but you have to make your way through them. And they made their way through them. Here's the next thing on this list is a struggle for survival. Now, I put, I put this verse, verse 20, on the screen because this lets you know that Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, and everybody else on the ship came to a conclusion, right? We're not going to make it. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest laid on us, all hope of our being saved was lost for all of them. All of them had lost hope, including Paul, Spirit-filled Paul, all of them, including Luke, and they're just like three or four days into it. it. This thing lasted over 14 days. For days, they didn't see the sun or stars, and that's not good to be on an open ocean, and you have no way of navigating. You have no idea where you're at. There's, there's none of the maps up there. That's, that, that was their map was the stars. That's how they could tell where they were at, the position they were at on the Mediterranean Sea, and they didn't you know where they are. They didn't know if they were heading to land or what. And it says, we'd all given up hope. I want you to go back to verse 14 because it leads up to that. I want to just read some of the things that was going on. 276 people. It said this northeaster struck down on the land. In verse 15, the ship was caught, could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. This is the, uh, the lifeboat, the dinghy. <laughs> you know, you can't lose the dinghy. It might be your, your hope. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Listen to how Luke describes everything that everybody was doing. They were all bailing water. They were all trying to survive. Then fearing that they would run aground, on the searches, they lowered the gear. Thus, they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. They started throwing the cargo off. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. They are doing everything in their power to survive. And the very next verse says, everything looked hopeless. Have you been there? You don't see Paul's confidence, though, until verse 21. What's the difference? He's fighting for survival, and he had a visitor show up on board that ship. And it was an angel that stood next to him and told him, everybody's going to be okay. The ship's not going to make it, but everybody on the ship is going to be okay. Now, here's what I want to say to you and what Josh shared about God's eyes are on us. God's eyes were not on Paul more than he's on you. He wasn't a superman. He was just like us. Days like that, they said, we're not going to make it. Even though he heard that God had him positioned to be in Rome, to testify of the gospel in Rome, on that particular moment, they all felt like this is not going to make, we're not going to make it. And this angel comes on. Now he's got this confidence again. Sometimes you'll be in a battle. Sometimes you'll be in a storm, a struggle to simply get through it. God has a word for you. He is with you. That's a, that was a great word. God is with us. 
He never abandons us. He never takes his eyes off of us. We may take our eyes off of him, but he never takes our eye, his eyes off of us. There's two more points here, and we'll close up. The very next slide talks about rewards of faith. Why did I put that? It's not necessarily rewards of faith, <clears throat> but it worked better as a subtitle. How's that? I'm talking about the rewards of faithfulness. And you have to go back to verse 3. The reason why I put verse 3 there is Julius is a centurion, and these were not men known for their compassion. <laughs> they were not like prisoners were below human beings to them. It's kind of like in some prison systems. You're just, you're a number, you're not a person. But early on in this voyage, the first place they stopped was Sidon, which is right there in Lebanon. And he lets Paul off the ship, along with Aristarchus and Luke, and lets him visit friends. He's a prisoner. What does that say to you? What does that say to you about Paul's capacity to influence someone? He somehow gained this man's trust. This guy trusted him. He let him. He knew he wasn't going to run. He wasn't going to take off. He knew he could trust him to go and visit his friends. They probably gave him some food, which probably came in handy a little bit later, and let him get back on board. Early on the voyage, Julius trusts him. And when the ship is breaking apart, if you track on down and they, and they see land, they finally see a shoreline. They said, we, let's just try to get there. They cut all the anchor ropes loose. And then on the way to the shore, the stern is being destroyed by the storm waves. And the soldiers were really thinking about killing all the prisoners. We don't know how many of the 276 were prisoners. We do know there was... Prisoners on board that ship. The centurion, the soldier, but the centurion stopped them. You know why he stopped them? In a way, Paul saved everybody's lives. Because he didn't want Paul to get killed, so he stopped the centurions. Some of the, the, the crew of the ship was going to get off on a lifeboat, and Paul says, if they get off, none of us are going to make it. So he ordered the soldiers to cut the ropes to the lifeboat. This is the rewards of faith. This is why Paul had such an influence. He was genuine. He was authentic. I want to tell you something. Don't try to fit in where you're at in your secular position in life. Be light in the midst of darkness. You will not win anybody to Jesus by becoming like them. Paul was a contrast to typical prisoners, and he got an atypical treatment from the centurion. And if we want to influence people, sometimes we have to be that influence prior to them showing any evidence of our influence. And that is when we have to fight discouragement. Because we keep working with someone, we keep helping them, and we're wondering, is this off or not? And this is where I think Paul had to stay the course, be the man of God. He was always in front of the centurion doing what he needed to do to let him know that his trust was in God. And that, I don't, I think Julius probably got saved somewhere along the line. Because you look at the rewards, it included, and the praise team can come back up, it, it included when they all washed ashore. This is, this is such a great story. And you got to love Luke. Luke. Luke is about detail. 
And they all made it. Some of them grabbed on the planks from the debris of the ship coming apart. Some of them swam. Don't know how far they had to go to get to the water. I do know this. Kelly and I were in a triathlon a number of years ago, and we had to swim 1,500 meters as part of the swim. We had wetsuits. They were, we, were, we didn't allow anybody to take pictures of us in wetsuits <laughs> to publish. But about halfway through, about a mile swim, it was rough. And we, weren't, we were in a calm lake outside of Memphis, Tennessee, doing this triathlon. 1,500-meter swim, 25-mile bike ride, and a 5K at the end. All of them made it. All of them made it. I think when you read this, and I'm going to summarize this, but if you're there, what happened there affected these people on, on this island of Malta. These Maltese people probably heard as they got a count of everybody that this ship disintegrated in a storm and they probably heard them say, well, we got everybody here. Everybody survived, just like the guy prophesied. Not only that, they were wet, they were cold, and they were piling up twigs and limbs for fire, and you know the story. A poisonous serpent came out of that bundle of limbs that Paul threw in fire and latched onto his hand, and these island people says, you know what? It's the fate of God. That guy escaped the, the shipwreck, but that, that snake got him, and they waited for him to die. When he didn't die, they says, he must be a god. All of that was affecting the, the outcome of this setting. What was the outcome? The governor of the island opened up his estate for the, <laughs> these ragamuffins. The governor of the island, he had an estate. They all came there, fed them. None of that would happen without Paul. He was the key to them surviving, and he was the key to when they survived that the island opened up to the gospel and Publius, he was there days telling them the gospel. And he found out that Publius's dad was sick with dysentery and he went and laid hands on him and the man was healed and all of a sudden they started bringing the sick from the island to this conclave and people were getting healed right and left. Don't you wish all the storms that you've been in would end that way? But I'm telling you this, if you stay the course in the midst of the storm you're in, God will show you the end result of faithfulness. He will show you that his amazing grace, this song says, through it all, through it all, he wants you, listen, the com confirming word of the Holy Spirit this morning is that his eyes are on you. He hasn't forgotten about you loves you. When we got to pray for people a while ago, I can rest assured every person I look at, I can tell them Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for you. He was raised from the dead for you. Yes, he did it for the world, but he did it for me and he did it for you. And he wants to help you. He wants to save you. He wants to put his arms around you. He wants to protect you. He wants you to make it. He is more for you than you can ever imagine. Would you stand with me? Lord, I pray this morning for those who are in storms right now. They're in a storm that's 
suffocating them. And it doesn't have to be a storm like Florence's battering the Carolinas. It, it could be an internal storm of turbulence, of loss, of pain. And yet, Lord, we ask you to step into the storm and rescue. Step into that turbulence and rescue them, Lord. Save them. Save them from making decisions that will not be favorable toward their end. To not get in haste and make a decision in haste, but to wait for you to give them the answer. And if you're in a place like that, sir or ma'am, that you need God to give you some direction, you need God to speak to you, you need Him to show you what to do next, you come and stand here we're going to pray we're going to pray that God will step into your storm